we think about words of life, I want to read to you a phrase, and I'm pretty sure you will guess the sorts of it. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a well-known phrase in the United States Declaration of Independence. Uh, written by Thomas Jefferson. The phrase gives us three examples of unalienable rights, uh, which the Declaration says have been given to all humans uh, by their creator, which governments are created to protect. It's important, though, to recognize that the words of the Declaration of Independence does not say that happiness is an unalienable right. If it was, we would be in big trouble. The pursuit of it could well be an unalienable right. But sadly, many don't find it. Though they search for it relentlessly. While the Declaration of Independence tells us that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness, it does not tell us how do we achieve a state of happiness. Even the words life and liberty. Oh, friends, as good as these goals are, as good as these pursuits are, the question comes, where do we find it? Where do we find life? Where do we find true liberty? Where do we find true happiness? Many in our world would want to tell us and give us recipes and suggestions on how to pursue and find such aims. But this morning, I want to direct our hearts and our attention to the true words of life and liberty and happiness. And I invite you to open God's word this morning to Psalm 1 as we consider our way, as we are challenged to consider your way. Psalm 1, we'll be reading the entire psalm from verse 1 to verse 6. As you are opening God's Word to Psalm 1, I want to let you know that we are beginning a new sermon series over the next few weeks uh, through the book of Psalms. And I want to assure you, we will not be going through the whole book of Psalms. It would be a very long sermon series. Uh, just Psalm 119 would be a long to work through. Um, we will work through this psalm today, and then next week, Lord willing, we will work through the Psalms of Ascent, or some of the Psalms of Ascent, which, which start at Psalm 120. But before we jump into the Psalms of Ascent, I thought it would be appropriate for us to take a brief moment and just stop at the very beginning of the book of Psalms and consider uh, what this book is about and consider what this particular Psalm, the introductory to the book of Psalms, is about. So we're looking at Psalm 1 today as a way to introduce us to the Psalms of Ascent, which we'll embark on, we will embark on next week. Here is God's word for us this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked 
will perish. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless uh, the proclamation of the word and the hearing of the word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have given us your words of life. Would you speak now by your spirit through the proclamation of this word? Father, I declare that I need your help in, in teaching and, and declaring this word. And Father, we also declare that we all need your help in hearing it. So would you by your spirit dwell in this gathering? Enable Christ to be exalted, even through this psalm, especially through this psalm. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Jesus, for your glory and honor and for our edification. Amen. Psalm 1, it's a beloved psalm. Uh, many Christians choose to memorize it. It's a wonderful entry into the, uh, into the whole book of the psalms, but it's a wonderful blessing. Uh, even just of the first words, blessed is the man. Uh, this introduction reminds us of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus' first sermon, as we have it recorded in the New Testament, begins with a list of, of blessings. And, and in a way, the book of Psalms begins with a beatitude, with this blessing. The book of Psalms, which introduces us to the realm of, of worshiping God through song and through prayer. It's amazing that this book of Psalms that communicates to us the heart of God and the heart of those who search after God, that this book of Psalms is introducing us to a song that challenges us not so much how well we sing or how well we pray, but challenges us to consider our way. To consider how we choose to live and how we, we choose to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Which way are we taking in the pursuit of, of the goal and the aim of, of pursuing happiness? Well, friends, this entire psalm is written to challenge us to consider what way are we on. So I might say the, the entire psalm closes in on, on, this, on this contrast of ways. The psalm starts with a picture of the blessed man, then it, from verses 1 to 3, then it continues with a contrast of the wicked man or the sinner, verses 4 and 5, and then it concludes with, well, here's a summary here are two ways before you. Consider which way you are on. Consider which way you are pursuing. The structure of the psalm gives us the points of the, of the message this morning. Uh, we will look at the picture of the happiness of the righteous. We will look next at the emptiness of the wicked. And finally, the choice before us. The happiness of the righteous. Verses 1, 2, and 3. I have intentionally chosen these words, the happiness of the righteous. Even though the ESV starts and uses the language, blessed is the man, a number of other Bible translations uh, actually use the word happy in this spot. Uh, the spot. The Christian Standard Bible says, how happy is the one. Now, Christians... Uh, often differentiate between the superficial notion of happiness as it's often defined and used by our society, by our world, and the more inner, deeper, stable experience of, of the sense of joy that Christians experience. And, and such distinctions are warranted. There is a distinction between the uh, flickering, uh, superficial happiness and the true deep-seated sense and experience of joy. But at the same time, we should not let the wonderful word like happiness to be hijacked by the world 
and feel like Christians can no longer have any hold on and grab and use for such a wonderful use and word such as the word happiness. So this morning, I want to make a plea with you that actually we should recover the word happiness in our vocabulary as long as we use it in the more biblical way and not in just the the worldly, superficial way. Who doesn't want to be happy? Who doesn't want to be in a state of ongoing happiness? Even the world, even non-Christians, would not want to cling to a superficial way of happiness that is fleeting. Everyone is pursuing happiness to hold on to it, to grab it, to, to have it for a long time. And this psalm is speaking about a state of happiness that endures, that endures for a long time. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want happiness? While everyone wants to sign off or sign on for the offer of happiness, I'm afraid few are willing to consider the true way, the the, the real way, the sure way to lasting happiness, to what it takes to understand, to experience eternal happiness. This psalm surprises us from the very beginning with what defines true and lasting happiness. Notice where the trajectory, notice where the way to happiness that lasts starts. The answer will surprise you. The first character, we see two characteristics of, of, of the pursuit of, of lasting happiness. And the first characteristic is in what the man refuses. The first characteristic of the happy man is in what he refuses to do or to take. Look at verse 1. Three statements, three claims of refusal. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The refusal that the blessed man experiences and pursues takes three statements, three layers. There's a progression in these layers. It's not just a repetition, but there's a progression in what this blessed man, happy man, refuses. The parallelism of these lines represent a a downward spiral. And this spiral, this downward spiral, represents the stages of how sin entices us. It starts with advice. It grows into life choices, and then it moves to taking the seed of ridiculing godliness. The steps of how sin entices us is also seen in the choice of the verbs. The man who refuses is a man who first refuses to walk, then he refuses to stop, and then he refuses to sit. You can notice the progression. So let's look at what is it about each of these refusals. What do they mean, and how do we apply that today? Well, before we look at these, just consider the fact that happiness starts, according to the psalm, according to God's way, by what you first refuse. Refuse what? Refuse to walk in the counsel of the wicked. This means refusing to follow the the advice or the influence of people who are opposed to God and would guide you or influence you in ways that would lead you to oppose God. This is, the, this is not just the, the realm of getting advice, but also the, the realm of considering the perspective or the worldview or the mindset of, of those who are wicked and opposing God. When we begin to walk in that perspective, when we begin to walk in that mindset, in that worldview, 
this man, the blessed man, refuses to walk in the worldview, in the perspective, in the advice, in the counsel given by people who oppose God. This may come in serious ways, or this may come in funny, humorous ways, laughing at sin, or enjoying entertainment that makes light of sin, is one way that we can walk in the counsel of the wicked. Or consider listening uh, to advice, or secular experts, or society's heroes, or or the secular philosophies that seem to or want to frame our existence in ways that are opposed to God's way. Blessed is the man who does not walk. We might say, blessed is the man who does not listen to, or who does not consider, or does not find delight and enjoyment in the perspectives of the wicked that oppose God's ways. The blessed man is the one who does not take such counsel and such influence. I wonder who are, who are the people in your life that you are aware of that you refuse to walk in their counsel? Especially living in a city like ours, it may not be hard to find people around you who may entice you with their perspectives. And yet their perspectives opposes God's word. And the question is, are you one who likes to listen to that kind of advice and likes to be around that kind of influence? Or are you one who knows how to refuse, how to discern and walk away from that kind of advice? I wonder if there are people in your life that you need to walk away from because their influence on you is not producing godliness. The happiness of the righteous begins with refusing the influence of the wicked. But the refusal goes on to another stage. Uh, In the second stage of refusal, uh, it's a refusal to stand in the way of sinners. And the picture of standing in the way of sinners is not the picture of, of standing in their way to block them. That's not the picture. You know, you stand in my way. It's a way of blocking. No, no, no. This is not that. The, p- the point of this picture, standing in the way of sinners, is you are in their way in such a way that there's no distinguish- distinguishing between you and them. You are, you are so belonging to their, their way that you have stopped to be like them, to act like them, to think like them, to desire like them. The person who stands in the way of sinners has made sin his stopping point. Has made the path of sin his way of life. And that's what he means to stand in the way of sinners. Friends, a step from walking in the counsel of the wicked to, stepping, to standing in the way of sinners is a very small step. All it takes is for you who are walking in the counsel of the wicked to say, this sounds good. Let me just take a pause here. It's as simple as stopping. That's how simple the step is. That's how short the step is from the first to the second. Friends, teenagers, students, There's a very good reason why your parents care deeply about who your friends are. Some of you are looking at your parents right now. Because your parents understand this principle incredibly well. Because life has taught them some lessons. That who your friends are and the counsel in which you are walking will soon affect your life whether you realize it or not. Because the step from walking in the counsel of others to stopping in their way is a very small and short step. So I encourage you, teenagers and students, if you have godly parents, listen 
to their counsel and don't push back when they seem to be concerned or want to know who your friends are. It is God's way of protecting you from the ungodly influence so that you may not be lured to stop and stand in the way of sinners. Thank God for that advice. Thank God for that influence, even though in this stage of life, you may be lured to just push them away. Don't. But there's a last stage of the refusal. The refusal to sit with the scoffers. And this tells us in this, in this progression of, of, of the refusal, this tells us what sin does to us. Sin not only draws you into its counsel, it not only draws you into its lifestyle, but it will want you to be an activist, to become one who ridicules the path of those who follow the Lord. It's not uncommon for people who have been in church for a while or have been exposed to, to Christianity and have, have walked, at least in their eyes or their experiences, as a Christian for a while, and then walk away from the Lord. It's not uncommon for them to make comments about those narrow-minded people, those fundamentalists who listen to the Bible in everything, those weird ways. It's not uncommon. Sin takes you on that path when you begin rebelling against the Lord and begin adopting a path of sin, it will soon cause in you to feel like that's not enough to simply walk in the way of sinners. You will want to sit in the seat of scoffers who now begin to ridicule the way of the Lord. The blessing this psalm introduces us to starts with refusing even the counsel of the wicked because it knows that the path of taking that counsel will lead to the seed of scoffers. You're not going to stay neutral. You're not going to be a sinner just for yourself. You're going to want others to follow in your ways when you take that path. So, consider this refusal. Consider the fact that the blessed life, the, the, the path to true happiness begins with refusing with what you refuse. Sometimes Christians get mocked for being known for what they stand against. And I hear this rhetoric, oh, we should be, we should be more known for what we stand for, not what we stand against. Now, I get it that we need to be known for what we stand for. I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. But sometimes that rhetoric is spoken in such a way that the person speaking it really wants to say, let's not focus on being known for what we stand against. Let's just be known for what we stand for. And friends, this psalm tells us the way of, of happiness, true happiness, actually begins with being known for what you stand against as well. It doesn't stop there. That's the first half. The second characteristic of the happy man of the man who finds true happiness, lasting happiness, is what he experiences instead. It's not just about what he refuses, that's true. But it's also about what he is for. And notice the positive characteristic of the blessed man. The characteristic describes what he delights in. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, does it surprise you that the opposite of what this man refuses shows up in the realm of his delight? Now, you would, if this was a, 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 an equal comparison, if the first half is what he refuses, the second half should be what he accepts. But that's not what it is. The opposite of what he refuses is described through his delight. And that's significant. The profile of this blessed man is not simply the profile of a moral man. 
It's not simply the profile of a man who does, not, who does no evil. No, the blessed person is described as a person who delights in the Lord, in his, lo- in his law. And the law of the Lord here is a way of referring to all that God had instructed his people up to this point. It's a way of describing the word of God. This is a secret to, the re- to refusing the path of sin. It's the delight in God's instruction. And, and, and part of delighting in God's instruction is to delight in the Lord himself. You can't delight in his word if you don't delight in him. The man who delights in the Lord is not a man who just has bubbly feelings about God. It's not just a, man, a person who feels like they and the Lord have it because they talk all the time. No, the, the man who delights in the Lord is a man who actually delights in the word of the Lord. Because delight in the Lord must be guided and, and defined by the way the Lord revealed himself to us. So the, 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 sec, the part to the delight in the Lord comes with meditating on the word of the Lord. This is not merely speaking about having devotions all the time. Blessed is the man who delights in the law, in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is not talking merely about devotions, but it's talking about this commitment to seek to apply the word of God and to see how the word of God has something to say about every part of our lives about every moment in our life, day and night. Our delight in God means that we are informing our affections for the Lord through His Word. Sometimes people prefer to think of their spiritual journey with God uh, apart from the Word of God. But that is a recipe for disaster. It's a sure way to be misled when you just think about prayer but you actually don't enjoy spending time in the word of God if you like to know what it means to meditate on the word of God let me just encourage you to grab a copy of Donald Whitney's spiritual disciplines for the Christian life Uh, in that book he has a section on meditating on the word of God and he defines what meditation Christian meditation is not and then what it is. The purpose of meditating on the Word of God is to engage in, quote, deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in the Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. I want to encourage us to be people who delight in the Lord by meditating on the Lord day and night. But this picture of the blessed man who refuses first, and then the opposite of refusing is he delights in the Lord and his word. This definition is closed off with a picture, with an illustration. The blessed man is described through a powerful visual in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Friends, it's spring, and I already have some leaves in my backyard that are withering. The the pain of seeing trees whose leaves wither. You have to put them in those brown bags all the time. Imagine, imagine a tree whose leaves never wither. That you would never have to pick up leaves from the ground to clean up the backyard for. This tree seems to be a rather ideal tree. Who wouldn't like to have such a tree in their backyard? But the bigger question is, who wouldn't want to be like such a tree? 
The picture here is a, a picture of a tree whose leaves go on and on and on. They never die. This is a picture of an immortal tree. And the point here is that meditating on the word of God, delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on the word of God makes the person to be like a tree like this. As one, as one dictionary put it beautifully, meditating on the law is like a tree drawing moisture from streams of water planted by streams of water. It means that one has constant source of nourishment which sets this tree up to accomplish what he was meant to do and that is to give fruit in every season, not to miss any. Friends, this picture is a picture of an ideal tree. This picture of a tree reminds us, quite frankly, reminds me of the trees in the Garden of Eden, of that beautiful, unhindered creation. And the point of this illustration is to tell us that the blessed man of Psalm 1, who delights in God's law and meditates on it, will prosper in all that he does. The language of prosperity for this tree is not dollar prosperity. It's not about the, the prosperity of just material stuff. It's rather, it's a language of accomplishing all that God had intended for this tree or for this person to do and be. The language of, of meditating on the word of God and being able to accomplish all that God has called the person to be and do reminds us of the book of Joshua. When God told Joshua the the leader whom God raised up to bring the people of God into the promised land, God said to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The promise of prosperity is the promise of accomplishing all that God had intended for this person to be and do. But the promise of prosperity is not only given to a person like, like Joshua. The promise of being prosper, having prosperity or accomplishing all that God intends to do shows up in the wonderful prophecy of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet describes the suffering servant who will take on him the punishment that we sinners deserve. At the end of that list of all the suffering of the suffering servant, listen to the way the poem, the prophecy of Isaiah 53 ends. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This blessing, the promise that he shall prosper in all that he will do, is that he will accomplish all that the Lord entrusts to him. Who is this blessed person? When we consider all that this person has done, what he has refused to do, and what he does. Well, friends, we come to realize Psalm 1, while it paints a picture for us, it's ultimately not about us. None of us can claim that we have never walked in the counsel of the wicked. None of us can claim that we have never stood in the way of sinners. Abraham couldn't claim that. David couldn't claim that. Most of the heroes of the Old Testament couldn't claim that. Actually, humanity's first couple took the wrong turn in the Garden of Eden when they walked in the counsel of the wicked serpent. The reason why the psalm begins defining blessedness with what a man refuses to do is because humanity lost its blessedness when the first couple failed to refuse the counsel of the wicked. So if we're going to experience the blessing of God and the true state of happiness, we must go back to where it first started. 
the first wrong turn was in failing to refuse the path of sin. Friends, the psalm presents a description of the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, never stopped in the way of sinners, never took the seat of scoffers, but he fully, he fully delighted in God's word, meditating on it day and night, and he came, became human, incarnate to fully obey the word of the Lord, and he succeeded. He succeeded, and you and I, if you are a believer, are evidence that Christ succeeded because we are his offspring. We are his offspring, those who have repented and trusted in Christ. Oh, friends, Augustine said wonderfully about this psalm that the blessed man of Psalm 1, this must be understood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another Bible teacher put it beautifully, from Adam onward, no man has lived up to Psalm 1. This is the blessedness that this psalm presents us with. It's a blessedness that all of us have forfeited already. But we are presented with a blessed man, the hope of one who indeed has never acted sinfully, who delighted fully in God's word. But before we talk more about Jesus, let's go and speak, look at the second picture The second point, we see not only the happiness of the righteous, we also see the emptiness of the wicked. The emptiness of the wicked. In the second half of the psalm, in verses 4 and 5, we see what happens to the wicked person. The image now is contrasted, is changed. Instead of the image of the tree planted by streams of water with its regular fruit-bearing and never-withering leaves, verse Four starts with a strong contrast. The wicked are not so. Whatever good, whatever happy state, whatever prosperity was promised to the blessed man, to the righteous man, the simple phrase, the wicked are not so, says it all. But in order to give us more imagination to understand how bad it is for the wicked, the picture for the wicked changes. Instead of being the the planted tree by the waters, the picture is like chaff that the wind drives away. And the contrast of these pictures is powerful. Just let, let it sit in your mind. What is chaff? And why is it used as an image here? Here's how the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, by the way, it's a wonderful resource that we have even in our library. Um, The the, the picture of, of biblical imagery uses and describes chaff in this way. Chaff evokes an image of lightness, instability, worthlessness. Scripture uses many harvest or agricultural images as figures of judgment, like pruning, pulling weeds, threshing, Picking, sorting sheep and goats, and winnowing. In winnowing, grain is threshed in order to separate the kernel of grain from the husk and straw. The mixture is thrown in the air with a winnowing fork or shovel. The wind blows the light light husks away, and the heavier straws fall near the edge of the threshing floor, and the grain falls back on the floor to be collected. Both the light husks and the heavier straws are referred to in words translated chaff in the Bible. So metaphorically, chaff pictures something not worth keeping to be burnt up by fire. This is how John the Baptist described the ministry of Jesus. And for all of us who think of Jesus just as the lovey-dovey, mushy, comforting only, uh, never confronting you with anything, only receiving you and leaving you as you are. Here's how John the Baptist described the ministry of Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn 
with unquenchable fire. So to be like chaff in the Bible is terrible news. And the psalmist describes the wicked here as chaff. To be found weightless and undesirable, to be swept off, empty of value and worth, because no one desires to keep chaff around. But the question is, when will the wicked people be found like chaff? Because certainly if you look at people around and today, no one feels like chaff. Wickedness doesn't present itself like chaff today. All the advertisements that you see around, all the ways sin lures you in, will never, ever present itself as chaff to you. It certainly won't, because chaff is, wickedness is not found to be like chaff here and now. It is not even in this age. The psalm is not talking uh, about how the world perceives wickedness now, but how God will evaluate wickedness in the final day. Look at the time frame that this psalm is pointing to in verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The judgment that verse 5 is referring to is the judgment at the end of the age, the great day of judgment. In that day, the wicked will be found like chaff. In that day, they will no longer be able to stand. They will be swept away in that day. They will not be able to survive the day of judgment. And therefore, the picture given of them on that day is that they are like chaff. The similar expression, the next phrase, sinners not standing in the congregation of the righteous, is not referring to the here and now. In the here and now, in our experiences, in our gatherings, in this assembly, sinners are welcomed. We want you to come and be here. We want our members to invite those who are without Christ to come and gather with us regularly. But a day will come in that final day of judgment when God will sort out the sheep and the goats. And he will sort out the wicked and the righteous. And on that day, the wicked will not be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. Oh, friends, this picture is all pointing to that final day that God has set for which and by which and when he will judge the entire world through the man that God raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. Friends, for that day, we see that the wicked will be found empty like chaff, not to be held on to, not to be able to stand on that day. Oh, friends, today and in our age, the wicked seem to prosper. Like Psalm 73, when the psalmist looked enviously at the wicked and at their prosperity. But if Psalm 73 tells us his enviousness and his trouble all lasted until he considered what will happen to the wicked at the end of the day. Oh, friends, this psalm from the very beginning, Psalm 1, tells us what will happen with the wicked at the end of the day. Friends, the Bible tells us that all of us deserve to be swept away because all of us have taken the path of rebellion against the Lord. All of us have taken the path of the counsel and the the seat and the, the path of scoffers and the the standing in the way of the sinners. Our only way of escaping for that day so that we would stand and not be swept away is if we turn to the one and only perfect man who fully obeyed God's law and who fully accomplished it. And he died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me. And he paid for the guilt of all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus so that all those who would respond by repentance and faith could actually have confidence for that day that they will stand before the seat of judgment. Oh, my dear friend, if you have been listening to God's word, but you don't have confidence 
You don't have assurance that you will be able to stand before the seat of judgment of God for that final day if you have no certainty of whether or not you'll be swept away or be able to stand. I want to encourage you today, while there's still time, while there's still room, consider coming to the Lord today. Consider joining the company of the righteous by trusting to the turning and trusting in the one who's truly righteous. The psalm closes with two ways. After presenting the picture of the blessed man, the truly happy, of the happiness of the righteous, and then contrasting that with the emptiness of the wicked, the choice before us in verse 6, two ways, only two ways. Look at the contrast. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked do not lead in the same direction. Not all roads lead to God. Contrary to popular opinion, not all roads lead to God. It is true that some will make it. It is not true that all will make it. It is not true that everyone will be okay in the end. And the way of the righteous is described before us as the way which is under the care and the watch of the Lord. This is the meaning of the words, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This is not about, you know, knowing in the sense of just information. You, know, you can know someone's way by putting cameras along the way, and you can just know what's happening on that way. Uh, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, not in the sense that he puts cameras all over and he's spying on you all the time. I may not feel for some of you very comforting. Um, it's not a way of, of spying on the, on the way of the righteous. Uh, for that matter, if we are thinking about the Lord knowing the way in that sense of having knowledge of everything that anyone is doing, the Lord knows the way of everyone that way. But the language of the Lord knows the way refers to more than just information about what you're doing. The language of knowing the way is a language of being engaged with and having a relationship with. It's this language that there are some whom the Lord will not know on that final day. And that language is shown, shows up in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is to say, the Lord knows the way of the righteous is a way of saying the Lord is personally involved with the way of the righteous. He not only cares for the way of the righteous, he not only watches for the way of the righteous, but the Lord becomes personally involved in making possible the way of the righteous. And isn't that what the Lord has done when he sent his only son, Jesus? God sent Jesus in order to actually make the way of righteousness possible for us. The only way sinners like us can walk on the way of righteousness is if we walk on the path and the way that the Lord has given to us himself. And the Lord is personally and intimately involved in the way of the righteous. Jesus Christ himself is our way of righteousness. So when it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous, it's more than just mere knowledge like spying on you. It's more of the intimately involved, engaged with, and realizing actually the Lord made the way of the righteous possible. But not so with the wicked, says the psalm. The path of the wicked, the way of the wicked will perish. What a contrast. As one pastor put it beautifully, no one watches over the wicked to protect them and bless them. The godless path they blazed through life 
will be destroyed when God purges sin and his wor- from his world. And when the way of the wicked disappears, the wicked will disappear with it as well. What contrast we see in the psalm. What contrast between the happy and the wicked. Between the, the path that leads to, to a destiny that's like the tree planted by water whose leaves never wither versus the path that is like chaff that ends up perishing. Oh, friends, this is the path that we have before us in the psalm. And the blessed man understands where the path of sin and wickedness leads. That's why he refuses to take it. That's why he he chooses to cling to the Lord, to meditate on God's word and delight in it because he knows here in this word is the only source we have to know the way of the righteous. Here in this word we find out about the Savior who is our righteousness. Here in this word we have the only hope of escaping the perishing. Blessed is the man who knows what God will do with the path of the righteous and with the path of the wicked. I wonder, what is the way you are on? I wonder, what is the way you are lured to travel on? Which way are you considering worth taking? Let the psalm help you make the wise decision. Take the path of the righteous, for the path of the wicked will perish. May the Lord, by his Spirit, enable us to delight in his ways. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the beauty of your word and for what it promises us for the blessing of eternal happiness that you grant to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is indeed our righteousness, the only righteous one. Father, we pray that we would hear and heed from the psalm not only the promises of blessedness, but the warnings of emptiness and perishing. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause your word to be deepened in our hearts, to be written in our hearts, so that your word would become streams of living water in us, bearing fruit in our hearts. Father, we pray all this in the name and power of Jesus and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen.